Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. And um, there would be no emphasis on evangelism if one has not already come to Christ because they wouldn't have a desire to please God. They wouldn't have a desire to see others saved. And so a response to Christ is wonderful. A non-response, as Caleb said last week, is a response, and it's a rejection of Christ. Um, we don't give up on people. We continue to pray for people. Um, uh, just like the rich young ruler who walked away sorrowfully when Christ presented what he must do to be saved, um, many will, but some will not walk away sorrowfully. They'll walk away joyful. Um, so it's always good to remember that as we think of evangelism. And uh, evangelism properly is just a sharing of the overflow of abundant life that Christ has given to us by his grace. It is a gift, as we read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And believers who know God, they want others to know about God. And what we know about God is along with the attributes and who God is that Caleb has presented already, is that he's sovereign. And that's the lesson today. It is how so the sovereignty of God relates to evangelism. Because there are some that say, because God is sovereign, there is no true need for evangelism because God will accomplish all that he wills. And that we are not really part of that um, ultimately. What we do ultimately doesn't have really an effect on the end of people coming to Christ or not. And someone referred to that as hyper-Calvinism, and that is not proper Calvinism. If you would read Calvin, he does affirm strongly the sovereignty of God, but he also has a heart for others and praying for others and evangelization. So just to make that clear, so, let's pray. We are going to ask the Lord to make these things um, clear to us as much as they can be. We will be discussing mystery today, so I'm not going to promise you that this is going to be reconciled in your mind, but the Lord is um, faithful to allow us to learn. So, let's, let's pray to him. Our Father, we thank you for our morning. We thank you that you have brought us into this place, your house, to learn and uh, to be taught by your word. Lord, we thank you for uh, each person here and pray that you would impart to them wisdom and uh, understanding to the point that uh, they can joyfully serve and know that you're pleased uh, with their efforts. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, all the answered prayers of the last week, um, seeing certain people that we prayed for and uh, we thank you for healing, and uh, especially with Addison last week, seeing him was a blessing. We pray for his continued uh, endeavors, and we pray also for our time and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, just a raise of hands, because I want to know who our audience is. In your growing up years, was your church very clear on the doctrine of God's sovereignty? If you would, just raise your hand if it was part of your church's teaching, okay? 
All right. Well, I would not have been able to raise my hand. Most of you didn't raise your hands. But um, I was watching a forum. It was kind of like an interview session between John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul from 2015, I believe it was. And they asked, when did you guys meet each other? And R.C. Sproul said, uh, well, I know exactly when I met him. And he was joking, as Sproul does. And he said, you know, who can, who can forget a face like that? And then MacArthur responded with, well, I don't know how true that is, but he said, I was at a conference that you invited me to, he pointed to Sproul, and he said, I wasn't raised in a church of uh, doctrines of grace or this, you know, emphasis on the sovereignty of God, but he said, I read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, and he said, I read Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. And I thought that was very profound because Packer is a good writer, okay? I'm not going to get, uh, but I'd never heard of the book before Caleb gave it to me. And for a pastor of, you know, John MacArthur's status, if you want to call it that, um, he wouldn't think much of that, but he has been a faithful servant for decades. And for this to be one of the uh, important impacts on his early development, I think is worth your read. So that's why I'm upholding this. And this is the book that Caleb gave me for this lesson today. So that's where a lot of our information is going to come from. So it's only about 120 pages long, uh, only four parts. The last part is the longest and actually covers what we're not going to cover this morning, um, methods of evangelism, which is what Caleb's going to be coming up with. But as we discuss God's sovereignty, we know this to be true, that he is the author and king of the universe who has complete authority and power to fulfill all that his will desires. Every blade of grass and every cell that divides within your body is known by him. Every star, the Bible says, is known by name. How strong your muscles are, the limits of your reach, all of these things are known. And even into the spiritual, he knows the intents of your heart, and uh, we saw this as true when Christ spoke with a number of people in his ministry. He knew their hearts as even before they asked their question. And so nothing then is outside his dominion. So you say, okay, I believe that God controls the universe, but he's not in control of the will of man. And this is where the rubber meets the road in the arguments that people have the disputes about God's sovereignty. Uh, because they say you cannot eliminate man's freedom. And um, we know that Paul responds to that by saying, who are you, O oh man, to um, question the ways of God? Very similar to Job. Whenever God speaks to Job in the Old Testament. But, um, you know, the people who say that are kind of drawing the line themselves. Um, but in the first chapter here, uh, Packer does a great job of saying that there are some self-evident truths for the believer that you do believe in the sovereignty of God wholly, and that is, number one, that you pray, and that's in your handout. You pray. You acknowledge that God is the author and source of all things, and that is why even whenever you're uh, praying for other people, you know that it is God who saves and you know that it's God who saved you. And that's the second point in your handout. You thank God for your conversion. 
you don't thank yourself. You don't say, I'm so glad that God made me reasonable enough to choose him, because then that would be a self-glorification. We don't say that. We say that God saved me, and I would say God saved you. So if you've told God that, thank you for making me reasonable enough to choose you, I don't think that you're unsaved. I just don't know that you understand what the Bible teaches about how he saves. And that's called soteriology, if you don't know that word. It's the study of how God applies salvation to the believer, and um, the Bible proves itself repeatedly in that respect. So for further study, you can research, you know, what is soteriology, and um, if these things are still unclear to you about how salvation is applied, I highly recommend you um, make that kind of a personal study, because it will be a rewarding thing as you're in the Word. But So we thank the Lord for our salvation. We thank Him that He saves others, and we trust Him to do so. Um, but the problem with this is, for a lot of people, they cannot stand to not know something. We all have to have everything organized in our minds systematically. And a lot of people say, well, this is a contradiction, that God is sovereign over all, but yet he holds us accountable. And that is, um, in scholastic terms, an antinomy. And uh, antinomy is made up of two... Uh, Greek words, anti, which means against, and then namos, which is the law. So it's when two equally true laws seemingly, or apparently, are opposed to each other. A lot of scholars would say that Calvinists have what's known as a Calvinistic antinomy here. But Packer says it's an apparent antinomy. It only seems to be contradictory. It's not actually contradictory. And the reason for this is because the Bible affirms both. Now, we can't pull half the Bible and say, well, this part's true and this part. Paul didn't completely understand what he was saying here. The translators didn't really translate it properly here. That's not at all what we find. What we do find is that there's an affirmation of both man's responsibility in both accepting the gospel and evangelizing, and God is sovereign over all of these actions. So, um, in 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul, he wrote in a seeming antinomy, we call it paradoxical language, and he wrote things like, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So, he's sorrowful, but he's rejoicing. And being poor, yet being rich, and having nothing, and yet possessing what? Everything, really? But we know exactly what he means when he says these things. When he says, uh, you know, I don't have anything, but yet I possess all things, we know he's given up all for the sake of Christ, who is his everything. It's very clear language. And as we read things in Scripture, it's very clear to the Lord. He knows what he intends, but yet we don't. We are limited. 
We have a limited understanding on his ways. His ways are higher than ours. And that means we won't understand everything. That's mystery. So the skeptic intellectual would say it has to be one or the other. But the believer who knows the truths of Scripture and their faith rests on the Word of God, doesn't rest on a faulty, temporal, um, weak hopefulness, like you're watching a football game and the ball's in the air and the clock just ran out while the ball's in the air. Oh man, I hope he catches that ball. It's not that kind of hope. Our hope in the Lord is grounded firm and deep, as the hymn says, on the Savior's love and on his word. Um, so it's clear to the Lord, and although it's not clear to us, we can still trust him that it is true. So our goal in this lesson is not to unravel the mystery, but to acknowledge it and to live in light of it. So do all people, all believers, let me say, have a responsibility to evangelize. I think we'd all agree that we do, don't we? As in the Great Commission, go into all the world and spread the good news. And um, there are a lot of scriptures that affirm our responsibility in doing that. But we're going to look first at some of the verses that affirm God's sovereignty, because we should always start with Him. We should always start with the Lord and, and what He has um, told us about Himself in Scripture. So in your handout, I've got a list of verses that we're going to go through. And I didn't want this to all be a barrage of verses, but I wanted to show the variety of authors and also parts of the Bible where it affirms God's sovereignty. Because some people think, well, it's just in the Old Testament or parts of the New, but from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, it says, Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And of course, that is who? Joseph. Very good. And then later in Genesis, he says to his Brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about in this present result to keep many people alive. And that was his sovereignty in preserving the seed of Israel. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of a person plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And that's a very personal promise. He directs our steps. It's very personal, very sovereign of, on his part. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. The king, oh, well, that's like the highest form of man, the most powerful. Even the king's heart? Surely no one would go against the will of the king. But no, even the king's heart is like channels of water in the Lord's hand. In the New Testament, we've got Acts 4, 27 and 28. It says, For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. So all of these people groups 
all of this dispute, Herod, Pontius Pilate, all of these great people, all working according to his hand and his purpose. Then we have Romans 9. You will say to, to me then, why does he still find fault? And this is what I alluded to earlier. For who has resisted his will? On the contrary, he says, who are you, you foolish person, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one object for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, namely us, whom he also called evangelization, not only from among Jews, but also from among Gentiles. Ephesians 1.11, in him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will. It can't be clearer how sovereign he is, ultimately sovereign. But yet, oh, wrong conjunction there, and yet, there's no opposition here, and yet, we have man's responsibility. In Matthew 25, 26 and 27, he says, but his master answered and said to him, this is from the parable, you worthless, lazy slave, did you know that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter seed? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. And he was referring to, because you were not a good steward of what I have imparted to you, entrusted to you, which in this parable is what? Ultimately, it's not money. What do you think it is? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. That's pretty powerful. So Romans 2, 1 through 16. I've only chosen two verses from this section. I put um, 1 through 16 if you wanted to read that in full. But it says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. See that pronoun, your? Their stubbornness and their unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment, or on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. So there's a twofold responsibility there. The one who was not following the Lord with the unrepentant heart, they're accountable. And those who are following Christ, those who are persevering, you know, we talk about the perseverance of the saints, those who are persevering are also accountable. And he will give them eternal life. In Revelation 20:12, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, 
which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Accountability there. There is responsibility of man. And also in Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16, says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. May we never hear that. May we never hear that. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, and I put this in there just to see a contrast. So here's one from the sovereignty of God again. They began rejoicing and glorified and glorifying the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. All who had been appointed to eternal life then believed. There's an appointment, an election, if you've heard of that word before, an appointment of the Lord, his sovereignty. And yet they trusted him. It was a response because he changed their wills to trust him. Now in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, it's our final one from man's responsibility. For they themselves report about us as to the kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So he's commending them for their turning. He says, you turn to God. And you say, but, but Bo, remember, God turned them. Yes, he did. And they turned. Yes, they did. So God's sovereignty and our responsibility is both glaringly obvious throughout God's word. So specifically, in light of evangelism, our response to knowing God and the grace and truth he has bestowed upon us, our command is the same as the apostles, which is to go into all the world and proclaim Christ. And I love Paul's writing here in Colossians, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 9.16. He says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He's saying the king has compelled me to preach the gospel. You're like, but Bo, that was Paul. You know, he's the one who got struck down on the road. I've never been struck down on the road. Jesus has not audibly spoken to me and commanded that I do these things. But yet, he has. He's given us his word. Woe was Paul if he didn't preach the gospel. And if that's Paul... It should be us. And of course, not in the same way. Some have a gift of evangelism. We know that. But we are all to spread the good news. We don't have to be Billy Graham's or Louise Palau. Is he reputable these days? Well, he can fill a stadium, can't he? Have you ever seen one of these crusades? I used to watch Billy Graham uh, in the black and white on TBN every Saturday night. Yeah, it was quite boring, wasn't I? Saturday night teenager watching Billy Graham crusades. But there was something that I enjoyed about them, besides George Beverly Shea's music, because I really enjoyed his baritone. But I 
enjoyed the simplicity of the gospel. I know Billy Graham wasn't completely sound in all of his doctrinal um, stances, um, one of which is ecumen ecumenism, which was not great, um, compromising truth for the sake of unity and that kind of thing. But his clarity on, on people's need for Christ was there. And uh, he did a great work. He did a great work. And um, some would say, well, he kind of hurt even evangelical name because of how far people have fallen away from the biblical truth and they had too simple of a Christ, they would say. The Lord will save whom he will save. Now, are we doing this? Are we evangelizing? Are we doing this at all? And, you know, what does it mean then whenever I say to evangelize? What does that even mean? Well, there's a Merriam-Webster definition which says to preach the gospel to euangelion, uh, which is simply the good, the U, E-U, and then the angelion, which is a message of some kind. It's also the root for like an angel, you know, angelion, angel, the messenger. Um, the second part of that definition is to convert to Christianity. You're like, whoa, well, that's a tall order. I can't convert anybody. That's not within my power. But it's part of evangelism to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. And um, so in one sense, it's preaching the gospel. In another sense, it's actually converting people to Christ. You're like, well, I can't do that. Well, you ever look at wiki how, how-tos online? It's usually the first thing that pops up. You only have one for evangelism. I didn't know WikiHow was very well versed in evangelism, but they are. They say, don't rush directly into the topic of witnessing. They say, start with some small talk and ask about what's been going on in his or her life lately. Don't expect that anyone would immediately trust you. I would agree with that. It will take a while before someone opens up to you. Ask them if they have any pain or sickness and offer to pray for them. I've seen some people evangelize in this way on YouTube, but then they also claim that they've healed a, a half-inch shorter leg during that prayer. Well, that's a little bit manipulative, and it's a little bit uh, farce. It's a farce. Um, but I will say that WikiHow's on to something here. You have to speak to people. There is a uh, very common phrase that Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use what? Words. Okay. Sounds novel. Um, do good, and you know, those that see you do good will see your good works and glorify our Father in heaven, right? There's some truth to that. But when we're talking about evangelism properly, there is no evangelism without the word. Because you could work beside someone in a, in a soup kitchen, a nonprofit, a good work, for decades, side by side, serve people, and never share Christ. And that's a problem. Because evangelism properly is presenting Christ Jesus. 
That's, in short, what it is to evangelize. And um, Packer may not have heard that little quip that I just gave you, that little novel piece of advice, but he wrote a response to it on page 39. And he says, again, the definition makes the point that evangelizing means declaring this specific message with a specific application. It is not evangelism, according to this definition, to present Christ Jesus as a subject for detached, critical, and comparative study. Evangelism, according to this definition, means presenting Christ Jesus and his work in relation to the needs of fallen men and women who are without God as Father and under the wrath of God as a judge. Name one person who wants to hear that. I don't know of many people who want to hear about the wrath of God, which they're under, and just how just of a judge he is. I doubt people want to really hear about that. But evangelism means presenting Christ Jesus, this is Packer still, to them as their only hope in this world or the next. Evangelism means exhorting sinners to accept Christ. That's what it means. As their Savior, recognizing that in the most final and far-reaching sense, they are lost without him. Nor is this all. Evangelism also means summoning men to receive Christ Jesus as all that he is, Lord, as well as Savior. And he makes a point that he's a living Lord. He's not the one who died on the cross 2,000 years ago. He is Lord of all now. And living in light of that moment by moment. It says... uh, and therefore to serve him as their king in the fellowship of his church, the company of those who worship him, witness to him, and work for him here on earth. In other words, evangelism is the issuing of a call to turn as well as to trust, and it is the delivering, not merely of a divine invitation to receive a savior, which it is, but also of a divine command to repent of sin. And there is no evangelism where this specific application is not made. Now, those are Packer's words. It's not from Scripture, but it is supported with Scripture. And as you read through that long explanation, you find all these different footnotes of verses where it um, points you in the direction of the Word to support these, um, you know, what is true evangelism. So our efforts then must have a presentation of Christ. And that being said... If no one is converted, is it still evangelism? So you do it all right. You present Christ in a loving way and not as much preaching as you are teaching because that's what Paul always says, continuing the things that you've been taught. You know, that's what evangelism is. It's teaching. But no one comes to Christ. Is it still evangelism? Absolutely. You are following the command of the Lord. And um, it was tragic to hear of a missionary that gives up everything, goes to another land, doesn't see converts. Is it a lost cause? No way. Not in the slightest. 
though they may not see converts in that moment, there may be one piece of the word left behind or some generational, you know, down the road, a, a son of someone or grandson of someone who heard about that one missionary that came to that one village and they look into it. And because of that wake that's left from their movement, they come to Christ. It is evangelism. And there is not any effort that is ever lost in evangelism, even if um, the converts are not falling down in front of you and begging the Lord for mercy, which happens sometimes, but not most of the time. So, In uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, Paul says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but on the power of God. So Paul didn't give his presentation, if you want to call it that, uh, in a flashy way. He didn't stand up on the tallest rooftop with a coat of many colors, like Joseph, and catch everyone's eye. Some people do that. Okay, that's their method, I guess. But he did not. He spoke to people where they were, knowing their cultural history, knowing their laws. He was a very smart man, Paul was. And he removed all offenses that he could possibly avoid besides the offense of the gospel. He would preach Christ, but he would do it in a loving way in the power of the Spirit of God. And he knew that if there were any converts... It wasn't because of his presentation or how wise he was. It was solely effective on the power of God. So we see him fulfilling his responsibility to evangelize, and we see him resting on the sovereignty of God. So this should be a comfort to people. If pastors thought that it was their sole responsibility to not only preach but also convert, it's all up to them, they would lose much sleep and they would probably feel like failures and maybe they should just quit their job because aren't preachers supposed to be converting the soul? But this should be a comfort to us that it is the Holy Spirit who converts the heart as we fulfill our responsibilities Something else that should comfort us as we consider evangelization is that we are ambassadors of Christ. An ambassador carries an authority. The ambassador is the representative of the sovereign. And in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. It's like the prophets of old. Not that we're going to be telling the future uh, events or anything like that, but proclaiming the word, which is also what a prophet does. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So although you feel unqualified, as Moses did, remember he didn't even want to go to Pharaoh, 
We are ambassadors. We carry the authority of our sovereign king, and we speak on his behalf. Why? Because he's told us to, and he said that it will be uh, fruitful and for his glory ultimately. In both the rejection or the acceptance, he will receive glory in the end. So, um, we've got about two minutes left, and we've got a special presentation. And uh, did you know that we have some very beautiful feet among us this morning? The Nikon family here um, have been in China uh, for how long were you in China? Mm-hmm. So for two and a half years, they served in China, and uh, you know, due to many circumstances, as we all know, uh, they came back to the States and um, still serving the Lord where they are, and uh, they're going to be given a presentation in about a minute, but um, to close here, Paul um, in Acts 26 explains that the purpose for which he was sent by Christ was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Um, this uh, should remind us that uh, we are begging in a way. When we proclaim Christ, we're begging people to turn to him. We're not going to be out anything if they don't. But when we love people and we care about people, we're going to uh, have a burden on our heart for them. And uh, so Packer states that, um, I'm actually going to skip this part because we need to keep moving here. But um, I, I do want to say that most of the end of this book is the method of evangelism, uh, which is what Caleb talked about last week. He said we're going to be doing some kind of in-person uh, practice and how to strike up a conversation with people uh, so that it's familiar to us because a lot of times we don't want to start something because it's not familiar. And uh, he wants to make that familiar to us, which I think is great. Uh, this week, if you don't have a, uh, if you have a second, to look up Ray Comfort. How many of you know who Ray Comfort is? Okay, great. So I, I saw one where he was in Compton. I think this was in like 2013. Uh, he was talking to um, an actual gang, and he was also talking to attorneys in a car together. They had, you know, their dapper suits on and things, and then, it, and he presented the gospel to both of them. And I would say at his own risk, he's like, you know, do you carry a, do you carry a gun right now? They're like, yeah, we, we have to. We have to survive out here. And so he still presented the gospel, and he ended with the classic, by your own admission, you're a living, thieving, adulterate heart. So, he's got some boldness, doesn't he? Well, may we have boldness as we proclaim Christ. And um, always remember that because God is sovereign, wherever you are is not a little place, and you're not just a little person, but you are an ambassador for Christ. And in the sovereignty of his goodwill, he will use you.